I'm Andy Bwachi, lecturer in religions and theology at the University of Manchester. Today, we're talking about the term Messiah and asking why did the earliest Jesus-believing communities think that Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah? For many modern Jesus believers, the term Christ is simply an epithet for Jesus or the equivalent of a surname. Others, aware that it is a title, often still associate it so completely with the figure of Jesus of Nazareth that they remain unaware of its complex theological, cultural and political history. Whilst the moniker Christ was almost certainly applied to Jesus from the very earliest strand of the ancient tradition, including the possible sources that Paul appealed to, for example, Romans 1 verse 4, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 and Philippians 2 verse 5, readers of the New Testament and reciters of ancient Christian creedal formulae are prone to presumptuously invest the term Messiah with meaning. If we stood back from some of these presumptions to ask why the earliest Jesus communities conferred the title Christ on Jesus, the answer might not be as uncomplicated as one might predict. Before considering the questions that arise, a quick word regarding definitions. The English term Messiah transliterates the Hebrew Mashiach, which derives from a passive cognate of the Hebrew verb Mashah, which simply means to anoint. In ancient Near Eastern contexts, it was customary to anoint candidates for specific roles as a rite of initiation or purification. In the Hebrew scriptures, kings, priests, prophets, and even inanimate liturgical instruments were anointed. The use of the so-called divine passive when human figures were anointed implies that they were anointed by Yahweh himself. The equivalent Greek verb is krio, and the associated noun Christos from which we derive the English term Christ, also simply refers to one who has been anointed. Readers will sometimes, as James Childsworth has rightly articulated, simply conflated messianology with Christology. Christology refers more directly to the study of Jesus as Jewish Messiah. Messianology, on the other hand, asks more broadly about the traits, vocation and vision of a deliverer figure who would in some way inaugurate the final part of Israel's redemptive story. The term messianic could, in the very narrow sense that the Jesus movement understood, refer to a specific individual who would inaugurate the new eschatological age. It could, as we've already suggested, simply point to any anointed royal, prophetic or priestly figure. Messianic may more broadly describe the hopes of Israel as presented in the New Testament. Here, Hebrew Bible motifs believed to be fulfilled by Jesus, like the suffering servant, the new temple, the new Moses, etc., become messianic. In contemporary discourse, messianic might refer in the very broadest sense possible to any movement committed to a defined eschatological agenda. Sectarian communities like the Branch Davidians or the People's Temple are sometimes referred to as messianic movements, and especially when such communities are led by a charismatic spokesperson who, having been elevated to quasi-messianic status, convinces the group that they have some special role in an imminent apocalyptic event. Now what we'll do is survey the sorts of questions pertinent to understanding why the early church thought Jesus was the Messiah. Theorists commonly speak of early Jewish messianic expectation without giving sufficient thought to the diversity of ancient Judaism and whether all or even most ancient Jews were awaiting a messiah. 
Even if we only considered our written sources, could we argue that messianic expectation was a significant concept in ancient Jewish thought? For those groups who were expecting a messiah, what kind of messiah did they expect? And what did they think he or she was going to accomplish? Was there a stable list of messianic duties codified anywhere in the ancient sources? Christian readers commonly affix elements of the life of Jesus to details in the Hebrew Bible, like a kind of messianic identikit. Many a Christian apologist has attempted to use these credentials to uncover specific messianic prophecies in the Jewish scriptures, including details about his birth, healings, exorcisms, his rejection at the hands of the ruling elite and the events of that first Easter. Moreover, this strategy is often not primarily concerned with messianism, but rather in defending the inspiration of the biblical text. But how valid is this technique? Can certain passages in the Hebrew scriptures be confidently labelled messianic in that they predicted some element of the Messiah's identity or vocation? And what might one say about the Messiah being in some way a supernatural figure? Parts of the New Testament record, and most notably the Johannine and Pauline literature, all but equate Jesus of Nazareth with the God of Israel. However, is there any specific warrant for assuming that the Messiah would in some way be divine, semi-divine like an angel, or indeed possess any elevated existential status? Could the office of Messiah not be filled by an ordinary human being, even if that human being were uniquely gifted, skilled or formidable? Now, I'm not going to attempt to offer definitive answers for any of the above. I do, however, want to weigh up what we simply assume about the Messiah against what we can know more surely. This will involve surveying a couple of the textual sources and constructing a minimalist portrait of ancient Christian messianic hopes. Part of the challenge for Christian readers will be to resist reading Jesus' accomplishments back into the sources, and assuming that these must have been things expected of the Messiah. A consideration of the broader historical landscape will help us think through early Christian identification of Jesus as the Christ. We ought to begin by pointing out that the phrase the anointed one in reference to a special future saviour actually doesn't appear anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. Interestingly, given the ostensibly Jewish matrix of messianism, one of the anointed figures in the Hebrew Bible is the Gentile king Cyrus of Persia, who overthrew the Babylonians in 539 BCE and ordered the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. In Isaiah 45 verse 1, Cyrus is described as God's Messiah. Now, there's clearly no religious import to be read into the role of this Gentile king. He is a messiah in the sense that he was anointed for a particular role serving Israel's God, that is, overthrowing Israel's oppressors and sanctioning the reconstruction of the Israelites' principal liturgical and sacrificial space. In this sense, perhaps one might argue that he was a deliverer or a conqueror, and in this broadest sense suggest that his actions had soteriological significance, that is, some kind of significance for Israel's ultimate salvation. Yet one would have to be playing very loosely with the terms to suggest that the vocations of Cyrus and Jesus were even remotely comparable. It's here that the proverbial rubber hits the road. The Jesus of Matthew warns that during the imminent tribulation, many false messiahs will arise who were not to be trusted. That's Matthew 24, verse 5 and verse 23. Now, this simply could reflect Jesus' belief that he and no other is messiah. 
However, false messianic figures might deceive people precisely because they performed deeds known to be commensurate with the office of Messiah. If the populace were cognizant of such deeds, they might reasonably claim that an agent fulfilling them was indeed the Messiah. But as we'll see, the textual sources present a range of duties that the Messiah would perform, and they're not all consistent with one another. Most of the passages that Christian thinkers employ when constructing the messianic enterprise actually don't use the Hebrew Mashiach or the Greek Christos at all. Though routinely called messianic texts, they don't even mention an anointed one. They sometimes mention a king or make shadowy reference to a special servant of Yahweh. More commonly, however, reference is made either directly or by implication to terms which simply imply some aspect of messianic expectation. For example, a passage like 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 uses a term like seed in reference to David's seed, invoking the tradition that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. Alternatively, terms like rock, branch, son of God or star have been interpreted to suggest details about the Messiah. The term actually became far more prevalent in the Jewish writings from roughly a century before Jesus up to the time of the failed anti-Roman revolt by Simeon bar Kossiba, the so-called son of the star, who was hailed as Messiah in some rabbinic circles and whose ill-fated insurgency came to naught in the year 135 CE after three years. However, even those texts which do contain the term the anointed one do not yield a uniform picture of what such a figure was expected to accomplish. A cursory look at a few of the relevant texts ought to make the position reasonably clear. Here I follow James Charlesworth's selection of relevant texts which mention the Messiah and most likely predate the New Testament and I'll key in on one or two of the issues that he raises. Several modern writers assumed that Jews expected a military messiah who would overthrow Israel's pagan enemies. This is certainly the case in the apocalyptic text known as 2nd Baruch. We read the following in 2nd Baruch 72 verse 2. After the signs have come of which I have spoken to you before, when the nations are moved and the time of my anointed one comes, he will call all nations and some of them he will spare and others he will kill. But in the Psalms of Solomon, chapter 17, however, the Messiah, quote, will not rely on the horse or the bow, nor will he amass finances for a war or encourage people to mount military resistance. That's Psalms of, seven, of Solomon 17, verse 37. Rather, he will bring down all the enemies by the word of his mouth. Psalms of Solomon 17, 39. In other words, the author of the Psalms of Solomon sees the Messiah in decidedly non-militaristic terms. Equally, the Psalms of Solomon offer an uneven picture of the Messiah's regal status. Both the opening and closing lines of Psalms of Solomon chapter 17 suggest in very explicit terms that God is king. Yet the call for a Messiah to be raised up in chapter 17 verse 23 asks for God to raise up another king. The question of eschatology in these texts is also very complex. The Messiah of the Psalms of Solomon inaugurates a new age. That's a picture consistent with the Apostle Paul's presentation of Jesus in Galatians 1 verse 4, where Jesus will deliver the faithful from the age of the present evil. The author of 4th Ezra chapter 7 also has the ages bifurcated into two in 4th Ezra 7 verse 43. 
and even reports the death of the Messiah figure. But this death is in no way vicarious, and nor does the Messiah appear to play any role in the New Age. Equally divergent pictures would arise if we consider texts speaking about the Messiah's role in judgment, whether the Messiah will be human or divine, and his role in the final resurrection of the dead. So if neither the Hebrew Bible nor any Jewish sources contemporary with the New Testament unambiguously outline what stipulates the Messiah's identity or mission, then how do commentators determine the parameters of Jewish messianic expectation and gauge who can legitimately lay claim to the title? The simple answer is that imagery and motifs from the texts with clear messianic significance, like 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, or Isaiah 11, are collated to build a best fit portrait. The elements of this portrait are then adapted when writers try to apply the features to a particular individual. As such, Simeon Barkosiba so-called Bar Kokhba, the son of the star, could be hailed as Messiah because he waged war against the pagans, albeit unsuccessfully, and aspired to rebuild the Jewish temple. However, Judas Maccabeus, who successfully waged war against the pagans and purged the temple of the idolatrous iconography installed by Antiochus IV, is never referred to as the Messiah, despite being lauded for his Phineas-like zeal in defense of the Torah, 1 Maccabees 2.26. Jesus, on the other hand, didn't wage any war. In fact, according to the Gospels, he was anti-violence. For example, Matthew 26, verses 51 through 54. He had no designs on the permanence of the temple either. The Synoptic Gospels have Jesus pronouncing judgment on the temple, as in Mark 11, 15 through 17. And the fourth Gospel has him claiming to replace the temple altogether, John 2, verses 19 through 22. Are these to be understood as messianic achievements? The question then of why the earliest Christians thought Jesus was the Messiah is complex and the complications don't end there. Different early Christian groups had different reasons for believing that Jesus was the Messiah. The Jewish Christian sect called the Ebionites ties Jesus's Messiahship to his commitment to the Mosaic law. Alternatively, Pauline Christianity saw Jesus as the terminus of the law's jurisdiction, the end of the law, as in Romans 10 verse 4. Even within the canonical texts, a variegated portrait of messianic expectations emerges. In Luke 3.15, certain Jews wondered if John the Baptizer might be the Messiah. But why? What had John done which could be considered messianic? In John 1 verse 20, John the Baptizer specifically denies being the Messiah. When he's then asked if he is Elijah or the prophet, the prophet being that figure that Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18.15, John responded that he was neither. He was neither Elijah nor the prophet. That's John 1 verse 21. So there were some Jews then who distinguished between the Messiah and the prophet. In Peter's speech, however, in Acts 3.22, the apostle identifies Jesus with the prophet of Deuteronomy 18.15. Yet earlier in Acts 2.36, Peter also identifies Jesus as the Messiah. For Peter, then, the Messiah and the prophet were one and the same. I propose, then, that it was not some agreed-upon messianic job spec in the sources which persuaded the earliest believers that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Something else convinced them, in a word, resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was the lens through which the early Christians constructed a messianic narrative from the sources, 
It's not that Jesus fits some pre-existing messianic identikit that emerged from the Hebrew Bible. Rather, the events of Jesus' life, and especially his crucifixion and resurrection, became the soil from which motifs like vicarious suffering in Isaiah 52 and 53, virgin birth in Isaiah 7, 10 through 16, and supernatural control of the elements, compare Psalm 107 verse 29 with Matthew 8 verses 26 through 27, became messianic. This scheme isn't difficult to discern from the New Testament, examples of which I'll now very briefly consider. In Peter's Pentecost address, the apostle, having invoked Psalm 16 and Psalm 132, made a biblical case for the resurrection of Jesus, Acts 2 verses 22 through 35. The sermon concludes with the charge that God has made this Jesus, that is, the Jesus whom the Jews crucified and whom God has now raised from the dead, both kurios, that is Lord, and Christos, that is Christ or Messiah, Acts 2.36. But there's no indication whatsoever that Psalm 16 or Psalm 132 were being read as a prediction of the single person who would be raised before the dead before the end of time. Such meaning developed after these psalms were refracted through early Christian belief in Jesus' resurrection. Luke also attaches other messianic titles to the event of Jesus' resurrection. He's called the seed in Acts 3.25, the servant in Acts 3.26, and stone in Acts 4.11. In similar fashion, in Nathan's famous prophetic utterance to David that we mentioned earlier in 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 about a perpetual Davidic kingship, the divine voice declares that I shall raise up your seed after you. Now, the Greek version of that Hebrew Bible text, the Greek version being uh, the one which the New Testament writers were probably most conversant, literally reads, I will resurrect your seed after you. Now, a close reading of Romans 1 verse 4 makes clear that Paul is drawing upon this prophetic statement. Only for Paul, the statement, I will resurrect your seed after you, is a premonition of the resurrection of God's Messiah, Jesus. Again, no Jew before the Christ event, reflecting on 2 Samuel 7 verse 12, would have reason to believe that Nathan meant anything more than, I will establish your seed after you, or set your descendant upon the throne, or words to that effect. But in light of Paul's experience with the risen Jesus, the passage took on fresh, resurrection-shaped, messianic significance. Now, to be sure, some sectarian groups, like those of the Gnostic bent, did not centralise the death and resurrection of Jesus in their teaching about salvation. For the earliest Judean-believing communities and the Gentile communities established by Paul, however, the death and resurrection of Jesus was the prism through which Israel's sacred history was to be understood. This is captured wonderfully in Luke's account of the missionary charge given by the risen Jesus to the remaining faithful apostles. The Lucan Jesus declares the following in Luke 24 verses 44 through 47. It reads, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, so it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. 
I often ask readers of this text how Jesus could arrive at such a set of conclusions. To infer that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day from a reading of the Hebrew scriptures would require exegetical acrobatics so sophisticated that they would defy all theological, historical and literary logic. Instead, verse 45 here in Luke 24 provides the critical key. Jesus opened the minds of the apostles in order to understand the scriptures in light of the events of the first Easter. Once Jesus had been crucified, buried and raised from the dead, the apostles could read backwards into the Jewish scriptures and see that this great salvific narrative had been staring them in the face all along. As the author of Ephesians would later outline, the messianic vocation was a divine mystery revealed in Jesus' life and work. So then to some concluding reflections. The idea that the Hebrew Bible reveals a messianic identity parade with a clear portrait of what the Messiah would achieve is not borne out by the evidence. It's not the case that the first century Jews calculated the messianic identity and vocation by reading the Bible saw these criteria in Jesus and therefore concluded that he must be the Messiah. Indeed, if it was that simple, how would we explain why so many Jews did not embrace Jesus as the Messiah, as Paul laments in Romans 9? A neat linear picture of the anointed one did not appear in systematic fashion in the biblical texts or the pseudepigrapha. It was the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth which validated his claims in the eyes of the earliest believers and confirmed his messianic status. Reading their Bibles in light of their experience and knowledge of the risen Jesus gave shape to the narrative of salvation they now preached. There was no unambiguous biblical blueprint for the events that unfolded on that first Easter. Many Jews believed in an end time resurrection. It's highly unlikely, however, at least on the basis of the texts themselves, that any Jew believed a single individual would be eschatologically resurrected before the end time. Once this had happened, of course, Isaiah's suffering servant could be identified with Jesus, as in Acts 8, 33 to 35. Of course, the Davidic king, whose body did not see decay in Psalm 16, was not David himself, but the resurrected Messiah. Naturally, the seed of David, whom God raised up in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, was none other than the crucified Jesus. Once this version of events is established, equating the vocation of the Messiah with the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth made perfect sense. The first century revolutionary Thudas, mentioned by Gamaliel in Acts 5 and uh, by Josephus in the Antiquities, convinced some that he was the Messiah, after claiming that he could part the Jordan the way Moses parted the Red Sea. The Ahmadiyya sect of Islam believed that their founder, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, is the Messiah, as well as the incarnation of the Hindu god Krishna and Muhammad come back to life. David Icke, the former third division goalkeeper and sports television presenter, was hailed as Messiah by his fans. Jonas Bendixson, a Norwegian photographer, followed seven self-proclaimed messiahs from 2014 and documented his findings in the book The Last Testament. These would-be messiahs included the Brazilian Inri Cristo, who first came to the realisation that he was the messiah in 1979. It also included the former MI5 agent and whistleblower David Shaler, who claims to have been combating evil as Jesus in Middlesbrough in northeast England since 2007, and Vissarion, the Christ of Siberia, who first had his revelations when the Soviet Union collapsed. 
even though these claims are usually met with derision or questions about the psychological stability of the claimants, messianic speculation seems to be as alive and well in the 21st century as it was in the first. However, if modern Christians are going to explicate the messiahship of Jesus and articulate how his messianic candidacy is more credible than Theudas, David Shaler or Vissarion, it will require some reworking of old techniques, rethinking of traditional apologetics and reprioritizing of the resurrection. <laughs>